0: You know, there must be a link between what we believe and and how we behave. Otherwise, faith is merely a privately held opinion. Far too many, though, can be like the little boy who had been so involved in memorizing Scripture in his Bible class, and he was nailing them. Every week he was getting all of the stickers for reciting them exactly right and having the most memorized from the previous Sunday. One Tuesday afternoon, though, he was sneaking a cookie out of the cookie jar in the pantry. When his mother heard something from the other room and she called, Are you in the cookie jar? And putting the lid back on ever so quietly, he said, No. And she said, Do you know what a lie is? And calling upon that massive biblical knowledge, he said, Yes, ma'am. A lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. You know, I think he didn't make the connection, did he? Jesus demanded that our beliefs affect our behavior. He required that we come out of the spiritual closet, as it were, and go public with our faith. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before men... Him will I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But then he went on to say, But whoever denies me before men, Him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 16, Jesus had been in his ministry for some time. He decided to to get a a feel, to take the pulse of uh, the impression that was being left by his ministry in the general public. But more specifically, he wanted to know where his disciples were. And so he said, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And his disciples responded, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Or others say that you're Jeremiah or Elijah or or one of the prophets. A lot of public opinion about who Jesus might have been. But then Jesus narrowed the focus and asked, but who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and represented the thinking of the disciples at the time when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I want to zero in on what Aaron read just a moment ago in verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 10. Same translation, New Living Translation, where Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart, Paul says, that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Why the need for verbalization? What is it in the stating of our faith that makes it such an important matter to the God of grace and the Savior of our souls? Why does he want to hear us say it? And say it out loud for other people to hear it. Well, I think if we look at the New Testament more closely, we'll find there are a variety of reasons why. I want to share them with you this morning. First, going public with our faith is an articulation of our theology. It's an expression of what we really believe about God. Oh, that's a key question Jesus asked, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? That was the central issue of Jesus running debate with the religious leaders of His day. You see, Jesus regularly arrested attention and created controversy by the authority with which he spoke and acted. So, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 27, as Jesus casts out an evil spirit from a man, Mark tells us that the people were so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man and in the process of doing so says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that set off a firestorm. In verses 6 and 7 of Mark chapter 2, Mark tells us that some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But then Mark records for us Jesus' response in verse 10. Verse 10. He said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then Mark says, he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, he said, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The response of the people spoke volumes about their view, not only of Jesus, but in making a a statement about Jesus, also their theology about God, His character, His ways, and His sovereignty. And you know what? The results were as varied as the people were. John chapter 3 verse 2. A very prominent Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus after hours and being convinced of something already and being curious about this kingdom of God he was teaching Nicodemus said good teacher we know that you're from God because nobody can do the things you're doing except God be with him John chapter 4 a woman sitting by a well having a conversation with Jesus coming to the more firm conclusion all along that Jesus is indeed the predicted Messiah, she goes back to her village and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, he didn't tell her everything she ever did. But he revealed enough about her to prove to her that he knew her heart. And she could believe he's from God. And she said, could this be the Christ? A little later in that same passage, as the villagers came out to see for themselves what she was talking about, and they listened to Jesus, and they watched Jesus, and they became believers as well, they later said to her, now we believe not just because of what you said, but because we saw it and heard it ourselves. That's not the only response that was made to Jesus, though. In John chapter 5, John records about a controversy that Jesus had with some religious leaders who were really having some heartburn with his claim to be associated with God the Father and even be his son. And as we pick up in verse 16 of John chapter 5, we hear John saying, so because Jesus was doing these things, that is healing on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work... To this very day, and I too am working. And John says, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, or at least they thought, but he was even calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. And then many of us are familiar with the statement of that Roman guard, that, that centurion on the day that Jesus was being crucified, watching and taking in that horrific scene seeing Jesus writhing in agony, watching the elements respond as God the Son is redeeming the world from sin, the man was prompted to say, surely He was the Son of God. I want you to hear me well on this. Because of His respect for our sovereign will and because of His desire that we choose to follow Him, God will not force us to believe in either Him or His Son. But I tell you what He does do He forces us to make a choice. We cannot remain neutral about Jesus Christ. As one scholar said, He is either a liar or He is a lunatic. Or he is the greatest legend ever fabricated by a human being. Or he is, as he claimed, he is Lord. You see, when we state with our words what we have come to believe in our hearts about the person and the work and the identity of Jesus the Christ, we are stating what we believe about God himself. And if you think about it, in effect, we're also acknowledging that we need only what God the Father can provide through jesus christ and that salvation from sin and restoration of our relationship to our eternal father you didn't know that you were professing to be a theologian when you publicly stated what you believe about jesus did you but scripture says that you are but also scripture says that when our faith goes public it's an indication of our true loyalty You see, as appealing as Jesus made God's offer of salvation and restored relationship to be, He was also brutally honest in what was expected of those who would choose to follow Him. A lot of warnings. He said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, for example, No man can serve two masters. Matthew 10 verse 34, He's going to disrupt households because of faith being placed in Him or rejection of Him on the part of others. He said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 5, verse 12, Jesus said that following him meant self-denial, likely suffering, and perhaps even death like the prophets of old. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, It's not just with your words that you proclaim who I am and what you believe. It's by what you do. He said, Not everyone who says to me what? Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who was in heaven. So you see, Jesus wasn't as impressed with passionate words the way we are. To him, the proof is in the behavior. Peter was passionate with his words, wasn't he? On the night before Jesus was taken into custody... Peter vowed to be true when all others were false and be loyal even to death. You remember that? But before the night was over, he was cursing and swearing and fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that he would deny Him three times before the sun rose. Well, thankfully... Jesus was merciful toward Peter and gently restored and reassured and empowered him. And as a result, Peter became one of the most dynamic public witnesses for Jesus in all of the New Testament. Over in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were told not to speak in the name of Jesus or uh, by His authority and work miracles in His name anymore, I want you to listen to verse 19. But Peter and John, Luke says, replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You see, this public confession is more than just a mere formality to be performed just before being dunked into a pool of water. This is a declaration of not only what we believe, but also what we're willing to die for. I want you to imagine. Consider the possibility that I would be leaving town on a trip and I'm packing all of my things to go and Kim is helping me and she comes in and notices that among other things I've decided to leave behind because I felt like I wouldn't need it, I left my wedding ring laying on the dresser. And she looks at that and looks at me and says, what gifts?" And I say to her, well you know honey you know how much i love you right you know way back there on the 26th of may way back in 1978 when i said to you that i would forsake all others and i would be faithful to you and to you alone so long as the most you live you know i meant that and it's almost 31 years now kim Isn't that right and she's looking at me with rather incredulous eyes and says yeah thinking where's this going and I'd say to her, well, you know, Kim, since we both know that's true and this relationship's just between you and me, what's the need for everybody else out there in the world to know it? This is a private thing. This is just between you and me. I don't see a need to wear that ring out there. Some leaving it behind. No, consider what her response might be. I'll tell you what it would be. It would be this. Calling hours for the deceased are Thursday night from 7 to 9. With a service on Friday at 11. Why would we ever consider doing such a thing? Why would we not want to go public, tell the world of our love for the one that God has blessed us with and we've devoted ourselves to? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32 All those who stand before others and say, They believe in me, I will say before my Father in heaven, that they belong to me. You know, there's a value in us going public with what we claim is our loyalty. I think that's why God in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, among other reasons, demanded that we do it. But there's a third reason, I think, that's revealed in Scripture that's so, so practical and so beneficial if we'll just get it. And that's this. When our faith goes public... It is a demonstration of our acknowledged need for accountability in our lives. You see, our omniscient God is fully aware of how difficult it is to make our walk match our talk and to turn our good intentions into consistent acts of obedience. That's why He provides us with a world full of human reminders and, and prompters to make good on our commitment to Him. When we go public with our faith in God and in Christ and our intentions to be a disciple of Jesus, the responsibility and hopefully the motivation to follow through is felt more urgently as we know that others are watching there's a significant passage about this over in Paul's letter to Timothy look over in first Timothy chapter 6 it's near the end sometimes it's easy for us to rush right past some things that are at the end of those letters but this is such significant teaching this is first Timothy chapter 6 and I want to pick up reading in verse 11 first Timothy chapter 6 verse 11 Here's what Paul says to his young protege from a distance. He says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now I want you to note what he says. When you made your good confession in the presence... Of many witnesses. In the sight of God, he says, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul apparently knew that Timothy's youth and his emotional wiring and his spiritual vulnerability would require some additional incentive to be added to his good intentions toward the Lord. So he reminded him of four key motivators. First of all, he says, Timothy, people who know you're a Christian are watching. Good reminder for all of us, isn't it? Second, he says, oh, by the way, God heard what you said, and he's watching too. And third, he said... Now, let me encourage you. Jesus faced this same thing. He had to own up to who he was and what he was here to do and what he believed about the Father when he stood before Governor Pilate and he passed the test and he knows what it's like to face that kind of pressure and he'll be with you when you do it. And then fourth, he says, need I remind you, Timmy, Jesus is returning. He will judge and he will reward those who go public and stay faithful you see in a culture that tells believers to sit down and shut up it's so tempting to fade into the background or worse yet go underground as believers isn't it it's the temptation I faced when I first became a Christian was a freshman in high school grew up in a small town of 2500 people one high school in the whole town 505 in the total student body when I graduated as a senior. small church of 65 people where I became a Christian. Our youth group consisted of about seven teenagers, most of them older than me, when I became a Christian. We all went to the same high school. Mostly guys, a couple of girls. And I remember learning very quickly that there were two sets of commitments that we made. One was the one that we told everybody at church about and that we acted out when we stood before the church and we said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I'm willing to serve Him as my Lord for the rest of my life and we're baptized into Christ. And here was the other one. Here was the real one. Here was the one we lived with Monday to Friday in Shinston High School. See, what we had was a secret code and a secret pact with each other in our youth group. You know what we decided we would not do? We were never going to rat each other out that we weren't keeping our word. Oh, it was tremendously hypocritical. But you know, if somebody in our youth group that uh, was misbehaving and acting un like was seen by another one of us in the youth group, we knew it. And you know what we said? We would say, pick a lock. Your secret's safe with us. You know why? Because when we wanted to act un like we wanted them to get our back as well. You say, Mike, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. We did it in front of God and everybody. We even had a little secret handshake. We'd walk up and kind of do this thing. You a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, don't tell anybody. Okay, we're good, you know. We go back to living our hypocritical double lives. Terribly immature. Very unchristlike. Unbelievably common. Not only among teens but a lot of adults as well a lot of adults go into the workplace making a secret pact with others in the workplace you say nothing I'll say nothing a lot of people go into the neighborhood making a pact with other believers in the neighborhood you don't tell I won't tell And people go underground with their faith, somehow thinking that if it keeps them under the radar, they're able to live the double lives or the secret lives that are so tempting to live. Or at least to stay out of the focus of those who would ridicule us for being believers. Church, we need to get radical in our holding each other lovingly accountable to the good confession that we made when we first committed our lives to Christ. I can't do this by myself. There's a reason God placed me in a community of faith. By the way, I've come to conclude after almost 38 years of being a Christian that that's the reason I was called to preach the gospel. I would like to think that I would be a faithful disciple if I had pursued some other vocation and career. I guess we'll never know, will we? What we do know is, what I know about myself well enough to know, I am a better disciple because God called me to preach the gospel. And what I want to live out for others to see is, I'm a disciple first and a preacher second. From time to time, I'll wear these staff shirts. I've got two or three versions of them. Some of the other staff members, all of the other staff members, have at least one version of it. Leave it to the preacher to, you know, go with more. And I like to wear them. You know, I joke with people and say, why are you wearing that shirt? And I say, well, that helps me know where to go to work on Monday mornings with this forgetfulness I'm developing. But you know, there's more to it than that. There's a big reason why, when the opportunity came, that I got more than one shirt to wear and I wear them as often as I do. I need that visible reminder to me of who I am and what I'm doing in this world. I want to tell you, when I've been driving on 64 in traffic, it's helped me a lot to look down at other drivers too and realize the shirt that I'm wearing. Somebody is rude and cuts me off, or somebody mistreats me. Boy, it's real nice. Tempted to say, or do, or look, or behave in a manner that would be displeasing to the Lord. Boy, it's really helpful to me to wear this shirt. I tell you, there are some mornings I get up and I go to the, to the closet, I'm hoping the shirt is clean because I know, knowing what I'm feeling that day, I need to wear that shirt that day. Now the staff was starting to wonder, why does he feel like he needs to wear that shirt when he comes to work with us every day? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is you need as a visible reminder, but i tell you what God gave you. God gave you your fellow Christians. And I fear that for far too many of us, We have become so individualistic and we have become so privatized and compartmentalized in our relationship to the Father that we have cut ourselves off from the very life source that will hold us accountable and keep us on the right path when we're starting to veer. I can't begin to name the number of times that Satan has been able to use his strategy of divide and conquer, get us off by ourselves, disconnected from our fellow Christians, and then we are easy pickings. We need to get radical about holding each other loving and accountable. And one of the things God has done to re that that will happen is He made us stand before other people and say, Yes, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and I'm willing to serve Him as my Lord. I can't back it up with Bible. In fact, Bible might seem to contradict what I'm about to say. I don't believe it does. I realize that in Scripture, the best and most opportune time for somebody to respond to the gospel is when they are convinced in their hearts and minds that Jesus is Lord, they are sinners, and they need a Savior. That can happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. We have precedent for that in the New Testament. And yet, I want to tell you, I have learned over almost 30 years of preaching... And almost 38 is a Christian. There is a tremendous, tremendous reinforcement that takes place when somebody is baptized when the church is assembled or when there are other believers there to encourage and affirm that. And we can't bind that as the Bible. And yet I've seen time and again those numbers of people who have been baptized in assemblies like this. And not only has it been good for them to state their faith in front of others, it's been good for others to have their faith and their allegiance and their loyalty challenged, examined, and reaffirmed by watching what's happening in the life of someone else. It really disappoints me and sometimes, quite frankly, in my flesh it irks me that people are so quick to run out the door when we're singing the invitation. Now I realize there's a thousand things to do and a hundred places to go within the next ten minutes when this service is over. But see, what you're not realizing is what God's been up to while we've been together. And what may manifest itself with a public acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and how you need to have that affirmed as well as that person needs it to have it affirmed for for them. See, now I kind of got off message and started meddling, didn't I? Oh, Scripture says that our good confession is a demonstration of the need that we have for accountability. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 26, He said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this evil generation of him, I will be ashamed when the Son of Man comes with His holy angels. Well, that's tough talk but it's intended to challenge us to step up and speak out and go public with what we believe about Jesus. Going public with our faith articulates our theology. It indicates our loyalty. It demonstrates our need for accountability. And finally, it's a participation in the changing of eternity. God intends to live in us and speak through us in winning lost souls to Him. Someone has said that evangelism is just one starving man telling another starving man where to find food. Like the liberated demoniac in Mark 5 and the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, God intends for us to go home and tell others what good things God has done for us so that they will have opportunity to receive the Christ as well. And here's what I've learned in my almost 38 years of being a Christian. I have learned that the Je- that Jesus intends that my first confession of my belief in Him as Savior and Lord that was given on Sunday morning, February 13th, 1972. Yes, I know I'm old, but some of you are older. Is to lead to a lifetime of confessions that bring deliverance to those oppressed and enslaved to Satan and sin and that lead people to the living water who can quench their thirst forever. That first confession is to be one of a lifetime of such, not only with our words, but with our lives. And it need not be anything more than a life that matches the faith that we profess. This little poem has been attributed to former um, American poet laureate Maya Angelou, It's not her original work. In fact, she denied that it was. She wanted to give credit to the actual author, who was Carol Wimmer. This is what she wrote. When I say, I'm a Christian, I'm not shouting, I've been saved. I'm whispering, I get lost. That's why I chose this way. When I say, I'm a Christian, I don't speak with human pride. I'm confessing that I stumble, needing God to be my guide. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and pray for strength to carry on. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not bragging of success. I'm admitting that I have failed and cannot ever pay the debts. When I say I'm a Christian, I don't think I know it all. I submit to my confusion, asking humbly to be taught. When I say, I'm a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My flaws are far too visible, but God believes I'm worth it. When I say, I'm a Christian, I still feel the sting of pain. I have my share of heartache, which is why I seek his name. When I say, I'm a Christian, I do not wish to judge. I have no authority. I only know I'm loved. Who do you say Jesus is? One thing's for certain. There is coming a day when all will confess His name. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 that at the coming of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And I'm telling you there are going to be two broad responses of the heart that day. There are going to be that group of people who say Jesus is Lord. And then there are going to be those people who say Jesus is Lord. Which group will you be in? Let's stand and sing this invitation song.